Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. Ultimately, it's about how we use our cities and we can use them far better than having a car park for four by fours or builders vans most of the day. The grand reopening of cities. As urban living slowly returns back to normal, what sort of city are we about to encounter? Well, this week we look at the reopening of community centres. Hear about the plans to temporarily pedestrianise London's Soho and why that should be here to stay. And also hear from the manager of a bar in Japan as Tokyo's nightlife gets back into full swing. All that and more coming up right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Well, the grand reopening of cities has finally begun. In the UK this week, it was announced that some sorely missed establishments, such as those where you might enjoy a pint or keep your lockdown mullet at bay, are due to finally open doors on July the 4th. In order to help restaurants, bars and businesses to get back on their feet, a campaign is underway to turn the streets of London's Soho into pedestrian zones. This is good news for a world that, up until recently, has mostly been the realm of cyclists and squirrels. So, what if the move was to become permanent? Ben Masterson-Smith is the director of Transit Studio, and they've been working on the proposal, together with the council and other agents, for the temporary pedestrianisation of Soho over this summer. And he joins me now. Ben, thanks for coming on the show. Look, every city around the world that's been hit by COVID-19 is wondering, how do you get your shops up and running? How do you get your food scene in gear? And what happens to your bars and restaurants as we ease out of lockdown? Now, you're involved in a daring scheme here in Soho, the traditional nightlife, entertainment, food and drink neighbourhood, right smack in the middle of London. Could you just tell us a little bit about this proposal which aims to reignite the food scene here. We are looking at all of the streets of Soho, and Soho is a bit of an anomaly in London. It's almost like its own walled city in the sense that there are no transport routes through it, only around the periphery of it. And its urban grain is particularly interesting, but it is filled with tiny, narrow streets with relatively little open space with two squares, but a very high concentration of restaurants and bars on many of the streets there. So our idea and proposal is really about taking those restaurants outside and using not necessarily public space, but using what's really largely parking or traffic ways to give restaurants a chance to get back into business. So just tell me, what are the bits of territory that you you have got your eyes set on? So obviously, parking bays would be a simple thing to take away and hand over to restaurants. Are you thinking of stopping traffic coming through on many streets? How grand an alfresco project is this? Well, in one sense, it needs to be a very simple alfresco project because ultimately no one's got any money to uh, build grand designs right now. And it also needs to be instantly demountable so that there's flexibility as to how the streets are used and normal life can continue for residents and businesses at certain times of the day. Also, we've been working a little in the dark in terms of what social distancing measures would look like by the 4th of July. So we had to make much larger, potentially, allowances for circulation and traffic across Soho so that people weren't crossing over each other, obviously. 
So good news for you that in the UK from July the 4th, it will be dropped from two metres to one metre plus. One metre plus, it means that you know, if you can be further apart, do it. But actually, one metre will be acceptable. So that must have really helped you, I presume. Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, it helps all these operators because it's still a massive challenge for them, be it two metres or one metre. Also, I mean, there are considerations like emergency access, which is still being preserved. So actually, to be really technical, it's kind of talking about a 3.7 metre wide possibility of a fire engine, for instance, coming down the road. And tell me, so you've spoken to all of these small restaurants and, and Soho is extraordinary because it's got some bigger premises where I, I guess you know, there are hundreds of people eating across a day and other places which literally have a counter and half a dozen seats. Now, for all of these people to find a way out of this, how enthusiastic are the operators? Do they see salvation in this opportunity? Absolutely. I think they see it as their only chance. And I think that's why it's kind of being put in such strong terms to the council and to everyone, because I think especially for those tiny independents, the sort of Bar Italia and, you know, places with a real heritage and nostalgia, if you like, about them, if they disappear, that's it. I think, you know, the larger operators, you could argue to some sense, can cope a little bit better, but it's still a challenge for everyone. And who's resistant to this? And I don't mean this because they're bad people. If I was living in Soho above a restaurant and I've just gone through three months when it's been silent for the first time in decades, if ever, and I'm suddenly being asked to sign off on a proposal that will see people outdoors where noise travels more and where the throwing away of beer bottles and things just reverberates in a kind of an annoying way. Are you having to bring those people into the story as well and say, look, this is an opportunity to do something for the people who keep this place going. Please (laughs) let us have a break for a few months and let us have a bit of noise. Absolutely. But I suppose I've been working through the major local landlords, if you like, which has sort of helped that conversation because they already know a lot of these organisations already. But I think there is generally goodwill to make this happen. I think it's just about agreement on the terms of what happens and what time it happens. But actually, I think it would be entirely civilised. It's more restaurant focused than just the beer bottles. And already there are problems because people are out in the street drinking, buying it from the supermarket. So in a way, it's actually far better to have a policed system across Soho than having the vacuum of no system whatsoever. Now, planning permission in most cities takes months. A proposal like this might normally take a year, I presume, to get signed off. We're talking about top-down from central government to local council, a sense of we have days in which to get this done and to agree what we're going to do. How fast do you think you could see something like this getting the sign-off? Well, the council actually has submitted their consultation. That's being turned around very quickly. So I think in the next day or two, we'll know if it's happening. But there are central government moves which need to happen to enable that. As you say, the planning currently is to do with tables and chairs licenses and licensing in the UK is also rather convoluted as a process, both of which take time from a statutory perspective. So that's not something that the council can necessarily ignore. So it needs local government to create a sort of blanket template to say this is happening, any operator is allowed to do this in the same way that they allowed all restaurants to become takeaways. 
And just tell me, you know, I guess the other interesting thing is if this happens and <laughs> the restaurants like it and it goes well, I don't know what happens in winter, but do you think this is the kind of thing that could be made maybe permanent, but certainly you would say, actually, this works super well. If it does go well, I'm sure it will. Why not every summer we do the exactly the same thing and allow this to happen on our streets? Because I guess the other interesting thing is this could turn around what's been like three months of misery for people into like the summer they remember. This could be like the best summer ever with like street festival atmosphere every single night that you go into Soho. Yes. In terms of the local residents, it's a complete hot potato in terms of talking about anything beyond summer. So I shouldn't really. But I agree that ultimately it's about how we use our cities and we can use them far better than having a car park for four by fours or builders vans most of the day. I think that's something which certainly should be looked at encouraging more bikes and public transport. And I think if we see positive outcomes from our sort of lockdown period, hopefully that's one of them, that we get a much better environment in many ways. And Westminster does have some of the worst air quality in Britain, I believe. In terms of how good can the summer be, I think that's exactly it. I think after everything that everyone has been through this year, why not some positive thinking and some hope for the future and some fantastic socialising in Soho? Ben Masterson-Smith of Transit Studio, thank you for joining us on The Urbanist. The lifting of the state of emergency in Tokyo saw many people resuming their way of life, including during the nighttime at restaurants, bars and karaoke clubs as they reopened their doors. But it's still too early to say that Tokyo's bustling nightlife is back to normal. Customers are still wary of going out and businesses have had to adapt to comply with safety regulations. Monocle's Carlotta Rebello spoke to Soran Nomura. He runs two bars in Tokyo, one called Ao in the recently opened complex K5 and the other called Number. Don't be surprised if you stumble upon our Tokyo team in either of them. Well, Soren started by telling Carlotta about the current state of the bar scene in the city as it reopens. I think a few weeks ago, we just finished lockdown-ish things. And since then, there's quite a lot of people coming back. I mean, customer-wise, not the 100%, but I think about 30 to 50% of people coming back. And how is it for either owners or people that work in bars and the hospitality sector? Do you have to go through any changes in the bars, for example, in the way you provide customer service? How is it working at the moment? So the bars in Japan, they have a face-to-face style. So they have the graphite whiteboard or something like that and try to not get the spam extra. And also we all wear the masks as well. And then restaurant-wise, I think they try to keep the distance in between the customer and customer. And of course, the staff have the mask too. And for customers, do customers need to bring in the mask as well? Yes, quite a lot of people. I mean, they don't want to take a risk because they already go out anyway. So most of the people have a mask and also the sanitizer in front of the shop as well. Now, I'm curious, of course, Tokyo has a bustling nightlife and a bustling bar scene. But just I want to ask you, maybe for our listeners that might not be familiar with the scene there in the city, just how much of an impact has this been? Maybe just uh, give us a bit of your thoughts on the coronavirus restrictions have impacted the bar scene and what it has meant, really. 
I think the impact was in Ginza, which is the classic cocktail area, there's quite a lot of impact. But the, the other side of that, the main town, which is Shibuya or Shinjuku area, I think they are pretty much coming back quite easily somehow. But during the time of the restrictions, for example, when people couldn't go there, etc., was there a movement to kind of go back to those places? Or as you were saying, now that there are all these precautions in place, are customers still taking their time to kind of trust going out again? To be honest, the people coming back, but not the all, because we kind of losing the foreigner customers as well. So it's quite tough. Now, of course, that cities are slowly reopening, people are slowly coming back. You said in the beginning of our chat that it's about 50% in terms of customers coming back. Do you think we'll see it coming back to normal this year, including the foreign visitors as well? Or is this now the new normal for a little while longer? To be honest, I think a little longer. For myself, I've been working behind the bar as well at this moment, and I also am doing the EC, like selling something on the website. I think an equal bar we will do in the future too. And then I don't think 100% of the customer coming back to the bar or restaurant until next year, I guess. That was Soran Nomura speaking to our very own Carlotta Ribello. Community spaces will be in line to welcome back friendly faces too. But the way in which meetings, classes, craft fairs and the like will be able to function will likely remain changed for a while to come. Canoe Landing Campus in downtown Toronto is one such facility preparing to welcome visitors, in some cases for the very first time, as much of the facility has just recently reached completion. This piece of community infrastructure houses schools, a recreation centre, childcare facilities and even a rooftop green space. All these services are made and created to be accessible to those living in the surrounding dense vertical residential properties. Well, I'm joined on the line now by Peter Duckworth, principal at ZAS Architects, the firm behind Canoe Landing Campus. Peter, thank you for speaking with The Urbanist. Now, Community spaces like this, where people meet and interact closely, will obviously face many challenges. As Canoe Landing and other community centres begin to plan welcoming residents and patrons back, what do you think are some of the main challenges that they are going to face? Well, one of the first things that really came out of, even during the design phase, was a real strong desire to keep as much of the open space as possible. The community campus is next to a park, And so the idea of the building not taking away from the green open space. So part of it was to look at a tight footprint to allow as much of the ground plane open for outdoor use as possible. Plus, we're looking at Toronto's first rooftop park as being part of the project. But by preserving as much of the open space as possible during the shutdown period, that means that it's been a net increase of the open space that people have available for recreation, for social connection at distance. So that has really worked really well and it's already been embraced and quite used by the community through this period. I think overall, as we look at both schools and other types of community facilities, including libraries, they fulfill such an unnecessary part of our communities, as you've pointed out. 
So getting them up and running is a critical piece, especially for those who may not have as much availability to access things in the private realm. So I think we're really looking at this kind of three stages. First is the emergency phase, which Canada is starting to come out of, other countries have come out of, but really the emergency phase was locked down and then just looking at what was available on the exterior. And some of the planning is even having things available like Wi-Fi, keeping the Wi-Fi on in community facilities so people who may not have the resources at home or are homeless even can still access some form of internet connection, which has been so important to keep up to date on the lockdown procedures, on, on health information and so on. So even just having those exterior facilities available for people and having that well thought out and planned for has been, and you know, obviously we weren't planning for the pandemic in the design, but it's really focusing on this idea of the indoor and outdoor connection and that the building doesn't stop at the exterior wall, but continues into its landscape and some of its programming continue into the landscape has been a benefit during this time. So that's really the first stage is the emergency. What we're starting to think about now is this kind of pre-treatment, pre-vaccine phase where these facilities do need to open safely, obviously, but they fulfill a very important community function. And I think it's interesting in this time where, you know, we've been deprived of these community facilities, the importance of a community facility has even become more apparent and more important to people. So we need to start thinking about that. It's difficult, especially with community centers. It is a a respiratory disease. People breathing hard as they're working out can even exasperate normal conditions. So we've been obviously working with the uh, municipalities and the best public health advice we can have. It seems to really come down to, first of all, triaging the programming, thinking about what program can happen online, what programming can be a hybrid of online and physical, and what programming you know has to be physical, and then looking at limiting the numbers, looking at hygiene, disinfecting, the uh, distancing, obviously, and ventilation. It's hotly debated about how airborne this virus is, but obviously doing as much as we can with ventilation should support a healthier environment. Can I ask you, you know, obviously, if you're in a category that's such as school kids or you're young, you're fit, you're able, the evidence seems to be that your chances of contracting COVID-19 in a way that is going to be seriously detrimental to your health is much more limited. But many of the people you're trying to reach are older people. It is a community centre, so you, you need those people to come into your world as well. And often many of those people are, are living alone or just as a, a couple and may may need that human interaction more than ever. So how can you make a community centre that is based around so many activities? You've hinted there a little bit about video connections, for example. Is that going to be a test for whoever runs these places, how you make connections with people who are at risk, who who are less likely to be feeling comfortable about charging back into a community centre? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've really got to recognise that there is going to be a lot of concern actually listening to one of your previous podcasts about learning from Brant Park and this discussion of the perception of safety and the reality of safety. So I think first and foremost, we have to be able to provide programming in architectural landscape space that allows choice. That's choice to physically engage and how intense is that engagement. 
is really about, first of all, providing the necessary baseline of hygiene infection control that has been shown to have infection control abilities on this virus. And this is a particular virus. It's a new virus, novel coronavirus, as it's called. So we're still learning what a lot of these are. And I think we have to defer to the best public health information on that. But to have that shown and clear and demonstrated to people so people feel comfortable. And then second of all, it's still offering people the choice. There's going to be a wide spectrum of responses. And we've seen this worldwide where, you know, in some places, people have been very happy to charge back into public spaces and public parks. And other people are quite hesitant. So we need to be able to provide those choices. For instance, some of the examples of pieces that we've looked at here is we have a community kitchen within the community center, which is fully camera and Wi-Fi enabled so that people can still participate within a cooking class, but remotely from home. Or they can come to the center, but at limited numbers with the proper distancing in place. So it's really, I think, this idea of allowing people this choice of how they interact with the community center. Actually, it's interesting that the Minneapolis Institute of Art has obviously had to close down, but they've done a very robust remote program that they found have actually connected to people beyond their normal patrons of the art gallery. So I think a lot of community facilities looking at how they can broaden their reach and allow people that choice may be an interesting outcome of this period that we're going through now. As you say, we're in a period where we, we hope is in the run-up to finding a vaccine that will, will tackle this virus. This has certainly been a moment of crisis, and that crisis, you know, while certainly nowhere near over, is certainly nothing like it was even just weeks ago. Now, what's interesting is, do you think as an architecture practice, when you set about designing new things, you know, not talking about this project for a moment, are you already taking into account learnings from the last three months or are you having to be a bit cautious and say, hold on, let's not overreact and design pandemic architecture. Let's imagine that things will go back to normal and we don't have to worry about this too much. For you as an architecture company, what's the shift in mindset that comes with designing a building after these last few weeks? I think we've taken don't panic as a little bit of the first mantra that we've been working with. It is a very novel virus to science. Science is still learning an awful lot about it, about what the transmission vectors are. There is this whole question around airborne, which may impact a lot on how we look at buildings. I think also, this is not something that within the design industry, we have a lot of R&D or experience in. You know, In healthcare, there has been. But I think as a whole design community, we'll probably be reaching out much more to scientists and to infection control to start thinking about some of these things. But it's very difficult to stay. Like, for instance, what does the end of this look like? Is it the one-shot vaccine or effective treatment? Kind of like what happened with polio, where essentially the one vaccine was found and we don't even think about it very much anymore. Or is it going to be more like the cholera epidemic, where... You know, the science was based around these miasmas, which proved to be not true, yet the design responses that came out of it, things like the large urban parks, sanitation systems, daylighting and redevelopment of housing, were all very positive things that led to an improvement in our urban life, yet, strangely enough, were based on science that turned out to be false. But the things that came out of that were good. 
So I think we need to continue to analyze our responses, both on a scientific basis, but generally also on what the improvements are to society in general. Many people I speak to in design and architecture and urbanism, they had the human response that we all had going into this. This is terrible. You know, what's going to happen to us all? Will businesses survive? What's our communities going to look like? But interesting, as you begin to pick up the conversation in the last couple of weeks, lots of people have found the positive in it and actually seem kind of quite bullish about, actually, you know, we're going to take away some very good things from this period. Things can be better. Things have just been speeded up a little bit. Where are you on that dividing line as an architect, as a, a resident of Toronto, as a, a city builder? Are you thinking, actually, this could be okay? Or are you still pessimistic about the impact that the virus is going to continue to have on our built environment? Well, it's a horrible disease that has had great impacts on many individuals, and we can't downplay that. But the other side of it is I think it has given society a very necessary kind of pause in thinking about how we move forward. My sense is that things that we have already been looking at, this hybridization between the physical and the virtual, looking at things like the 15-minute city that the Paris mayor has been putting forward, this idea of more stronger local connections, of more resilient, robust communities that we've seen. Like, it's been an amazing thing. If you think my safety is based on trust, I'm trusting all the other individuals in the world to do things like wash their hands and social distance. And it's worked. There hasn't been mass panic. We have, in the large extent, been able to flatten that curve in most countries by simply relying on the population to do the right thing. And by and large, people have stepped up to that challenge and have done the right things. So I think as a community, now that we've established this level of trust with individual members within the community, I think we're going to see a more robust response with supporting community, of supporting community facilities, seeing the importance of community facilities, of fostering that we are stronger together, that we are in this together. And that spirit and feeling will probably go forward. Maybe it's similar to the response to London after the Blitz, where at the time, many government leaders were quite concerned about a panic taking on the community, but instead what we see is stronger community ties. And I think we're similarly going to see that out of this experience. Stronger communities, more desire to see active transportation, more desire to see everything within a robust local community environment. Peter Duckworth, Principal at ZAS Architects. Thank you for joining me on The Urbanist. Well, as cities open up, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because here, for example, in the UK, they're saying that if you go to a pub, you're going to have to leave your name and your contact details in case somebody else in the pub is infected with COVID-19 and they can contact trace you. You're also going to have to book in a time to make sure that the pub isn't overcrowded. So while it would be great to perhaps go and get a drink at the end of the day, that amount of planning and the potential risks of it being underlined at every step are going to take some of the fun out of our reopened cities. As we were drifting through this odd period, people talked about the new normal, and we're beginning to see what that is. It's definitely new, but it's not quite 
normal. There are going to be lots of things that we're going to have to deal with for months and potentially years to come until a vaccine comes along or by some miracle this virus burns itself out. So we're excited to see what happens. But the most important thing is that urbanism can play a great role here. If city authorities and central government say change planning laws, use all of the public realm to the best of its ability, get rid of those car parks, let people sit outside, then you begin to see some sense of fun and frivolity returning to cities which have had their enthusiasm dampened for months. So, of course, like everybody, we're still concerned that there are many challenges ahead, but optimistic that certainly in the Northern Hemisphere, the next few months, with a bit of sunshine, could be pretty amazing. And that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out of this week's episode, here's Rye with Open. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Ooh.